0: This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories of all sorts here on this show. And this next one is a story about a bridge in Durham, North Carolina, that has captured the world's attention on YouTube. Today, Jesse brings us the story of the 11-foot-8-inch-high bridge. The 11-foot-8 bridge
1: is a railroad trestle in Durham, North Carolina that people keep running into with their big trucks, buses, and RVs. Sometimes entire roofs of moving vans are removed. Peeled and rolling back like a tin can, big rigs are stuck under the thing. And despite many large warning signs, flashing lights, warning drivers who dare to pass under its 11 foot eight clearance, people just keep running into it. One day, Jurgen Henn started recording. The bridge
2: is right outside my office. I started working in that building in 2002, and uh, every time a truck hits the bridge, we kind of notice because it's loud, usually, <laughs> and so over, over the years, and, you know, every, every few weeks we walk out there and check on the driver and, and kind of survey the mayhem.
1: The trestle is over a hundred years old and at the time it was built, there were no standards for minimum clearance. On average, about once a month, the truck runs into the damn thing.
2: In 2008, I was setting up a home security system and with wireless cameras and decided that it'd be kind of interesting to set up one of those cameras at the office to start filming the traffic and maybe catch one or two of these truck crashes to see what that actually looks like. I'd never actually seen it happen in real life. As it happened, just a couple of weeks after I set up the camera, I caught the first crash and decided to put it on YouTube. It became pretty popular right away. So clearly there was an interest for that kind of footage. So I certainly kept recording. There was not much overhead really.
1: The North Carolina Railroad Company owns the trestle, but lifting it would cost millions of dollars, so they installed a crash beam. It reduces the impact of trucks hitting the trestle by slicing open the vehicle like a 46 Ford cutting through a DeLorean. They call it the can opener. The road can't be lowered because of sewer lines underneath, and there are warning signs for three blocks leading up to it. There's even a sensor that can detect a truck that won't fit. If your rig is too tall, it'll trigger a sequence of massive flashing lights that specifically tell the driver to exit. But still, people keep hitting it. Jurgen has hundreds of videos of people crashing into this thing and millions of views on YouTube. He even collects parts of the crash debris and sells it back to his fans.
2: I credit my wife for that idea. I mean, I just clean up a little bit when we go down there, kind of pick up the pieces, and notice that they're kind of cool looking. You know, sometimes they're bent in spirals or or other interesting shapes. So I started keeping the the more interesting looking pieces in my office, and over the years, well, one box after another, I eventually hauled some of those boxes home. (laughs) and My wife, Honey, um, let's do something with these boxes of truck pieces. How about I try to sell them? And I'm like, sure, honey, you try to sell them. Well, he he was actually onto something and um, took some nice pictures, named the pieces, and uh, started our online store where we sell t shirts and crash art. That was. That, that moniker was also right <laughs> to call it crash art. Lucrative is probably not the word that comes to mind. Um, <laughs> I'm not about to quit my day job over this for sure. I, I would call it a self-sustaining hobby. Making enough money off the T-shirt sales and, and crash art, and I have a Patreon page now too to help sort of sustain the whole thing. Every couple of years or so, get new cameras so I can capture good, good high-quality footage.
1: Now, for the record, the actual clearance height of the 11 foot 8 bridge is 11 foot 10.8, which technically gives it 2.8 inches more than advertised. For Our American Stories,
0: I'm Jesse Edwards. And thanks for that story, Jesse. And people do everything in this country. They have all kinds of hobbies. Some people bowl. Some people play poker. Some people golf, knit. This guy, crash art. And as he said it, it's a self-sustaining hobby. And boy, that's better than most. Most of us have to pay for our hobbies. By the way, you can go to YouTube and there's a video of somewhere over 7 million views of the ultimate montage of all the crashes that this gentleman has filmed over the years with his little homespun rigged camera that he just decided would Capture all the crashes he'd never seen. Now he gets to see it. Now we all get to see it. By the way, if you have quirky stories like this, passions, hobbies, or know people who do, send them our way. And that's ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. I'm trying to run down a guy who has a toaster museum. I'd seen an article about it somewhere. And if anybody knows, the wisdom of the crowds is great. I'd seen or read this story about a guy who'd collected toasters from the beginning of time and has turned his home and several others into this ultimate toaster museum. And that's right, toaster, T-O-A-S-T-E-R. And he's walking through it and talking about every single kind of toaster, the one-piece-of-toast toaster, then the two-piece-of-toast toaster, the ones that fold, the one that hold four. And he was just waxing poetic, and I can just imagine what his wife thinks of that toaster museum it's tens of thousands of dollars in time but if it keeps them off the streets well you know what's the problem your hobbies send them our way a friend's somebody in town ouramericannetwork.org the story of the 11 foot 8 inch bridge actually the 11 foot 10 inch bridge here on our american story This is Our American Stories and we tell stories of all kinds here folks as you've come to, to love and know we're always trying to get stories in the voice of the person telling them. We try and get out of the way step as far back as possible and we love to get stories behind stories and Brett Favre's life we've been digging in deep and this is the fourth part of a five part series. Brett Favre's life outside of the goalposts, which is what we're interested in here on this show, not Brett Favre, the football star. That's interesting. But who's the man? What's life like before and after? Who were his parents? Where did he grow up? How did he deal with fame and everything after? Here's Brett Favre getting personal about his faith, about humility, and about aging.
3: And I can't speak for other people, but we, we, we and I, I say we, more me, but We tend to lean on God when we need him. Going to rehab, spending time by myself, like open a Bible. God, I need some help. I can't do this alone. And I remember asking people, not, and we we still are active in the Catholic Church. In fact, Father Tommy, our priest, is one of our, we, we take him on vacations and do all kinds of stuff, but But like leaning on someone and I, I've had enough adversity to walk me through the Bible. You go to rehab three times, you lose your dad. Deanna lost her brother out here on a four-wheeler accident. Yeah, he was 19 years old. Yeah. On my four-wheeler. Killed, they helicoptered him out of here to the hospital but I mean it's bad you know so there's enough things that you know you go God I need some help here and and you do well for a while and you slip and you do well and you slip but I think as I've gotten older I tend to slip maybe less um I look at things differently. I think at at 50, I'm a lot wiser than I was at 40. But I'm sure if I make it to 60, I'll be saying, "You were a friggin' idiot at 50. You didn't know nothing." And I'm sure that's the cycle that will always be. And I'm talking about just life in general. Uh, What what we thought was important at 18, at 30 we thought. now what, you know, what were you thinking? And then at 40, you thought, what were you thinking at 30? And, but you, I feel like you you narrow down as you get older, what matters and what it takes, to, you know, to, to achieve whatever happiness. Um, and so I think that, uh, my faith has gotten gotten better and stronger, but it needs a lot of work. I'm not going to sit here and and, and brag, but I do, um, I do know that uh, that humility is. Uh, I had to look it up. You know, I'm thinking, I'm thinking one thing and and. Actually, what I was thinking, I didn't know how to put it in words, and humility was the word I was looking for. There was a time I thought that it was all about me, but it's like the Oakland game or my career. You could say the Oakland game is like my career. Um, I was just driving the car, you know. Um, God was telling me where to go, when to stop win the pass, win, win the park. And um, and, and, that, and that took a while. I think that I goes back to playing 20 years. At 21, I thought, once I got into play, I thought, yeah, I can be pretty damn good. And at 19, 20 years, you know, I'm like, that doesn't matter, really. You need to be thankful that God gave you the opportunity. And and also, you know, the, the one thing that I, I feel really good about is that I made the most of it. You know, I, I let him down in a lot of ways. That was one of them I didn't let him down. He's like, all right, I gave you a gift. What are you going to do with it? And I actually told my daughter that today. I said you got a chance because she didn't play very good last week. They played Friday and Saturday. She played pretty good Friday, not so good Saturday. She was really down, and she was beating herself up today. And uh, I got to do this. My weights, o- I'm overweight. And I said, look, here's the, the reality, and I said this is the truth. You got a chance next week to redeem yourself. And it starts now. What are you going to do with it? There's going to come a time when it's over, and then what do you do? So, and that's life in general. You know, we we have a chance to. In fact, I, I say we. You know, you never know when it ends. My dad died at fifty-six, and that was. I was thirty-two or three, and I thought I was—I thought I was really young. Now I—now I, that—I mean, I'm almost my dad's age, and uh, it's kind of like, buddy, you know, I do the physicals and do do all the things I need to do, and he didn't in spite of me trying to say, dad, you need to get a physical. He didn't take really good care of himself. He just thought he was going to live forever. You know, that, that mentality, like that, you know, his age or definitely before him, other generations, I'm sure you say, you need to go see a doctor. Oh, I ain't going to see no doctor. I mean, you, I don't care how tough you are when it's your time but he had apparently had had two other heart attacks that no one knew uh, the autopsy showed that there was a massive heart attack he was driving down the road again he was 56 which is you know i'm 50 now 56 don't seem that uh, i you know there was a time 50 he was like 50 sold now I'm like, 56, ain't that, you know? But, but um, you know, it's really unfair. I look at it as when, when people are like that, like my dad was, it's really unfair to everyone else that you would be that selfish that you wouldn't take care of yourself. If, you know, for do it for the kids or... Your wife, or whatever. If you think about me, you, you with the kids, if you just neglected, you'd feel terrible. Well, that's what you do when you don't take care of yourself. If you just walked away from them, that, that's really kind of the same thing. So, I mean, when it's your time, it's your time, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to hang on as long as I can.
0: And you've been listening to Brett Favre, part four of our five-part series about so much. And my goodness, him talking about humility, having to look up the word, that those words could approximate what he was thinking about. And my good, looking back at our lives, we can all do that. If we're not, we're really not living right. How we looked and did things 10 years ago, hopefully we're doing better now and we're improving. I think that's why people are happier as they get older, especially as they hit their 60s or 70s. Our segment on happiness and the happiness curve with Jonathan Roush may be one of my favorite hours. And a great American writer was miserable in his late 40s. And by the time he was in his mid-50s, he'd figured out why. And he peeled off a lot of parts of his life that weren't making him happy. Started to live with a little bit of gratitude, a lot more humility. And his life changed. And this happens as we get older anyway. But my goodness, thinking about life in context and living it properly, hopefully you just get a little better each day, one day at a time. Sometimes up, sometimes down. And again, go to ouramericannetwork.org. We have this five-part series from Brett Favre, and no one has anything like it, and that's what we do here on this show. And whether it's the life of Brett or Henry Ford, where we talk to great historians about him, or the Steinway family, or, my goodness, our Dred Scott on Spikes story by George Will about Kurt Flood. It's just a beautiful story. And our favorites are when we hear from the subject's in their own words, with their own voices, as little of us as possible. Brett Favre's story, here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about, well, just about everything here on this show. And one of our favorite regular features is a feature called Final Thoughts. And today, our regular contributor, Bill Brake, tells us a story from his little town, Antrim, New Hampshire.
4: Antrim's voters elected me a cemetery trustee in 2018. I'd helped two other trustees govern the town's four public cemeteries. It's meant receiving occasional telephone calls from relatives of deceased persons who wanted to be buried in Antrim. Among the usual reasons for this are that the deceased was born or spent many happy summers in the town. The callers generally asked about getting the grave dug. I gather the correct term of art is opening the grave... I referred them to a pleasant, good-natured, and compassionate gentleman with a backhoe who performs this office for a funeral parlor in the neighboring town of Hillsboro, and for anyone else in the area who needs his services. Antrim's public cemeteries are Center, Meeting House Hill, North Branch, and over East. I visited them all before my election. The town's Department of Highways had maintained them well. Three of the four are now full, with many dark gray, heavily weathered slate markers from the 18th and 19th centuries. Only North Branch is active, which is to say new customers are welcome. Recently, after a friendly and sympathetic chat with an older woman who wishes to bury her son's remains here, I strolled down to Cemetery Road, a well-kept dirt road that borders my property, just beyond an unnamed stream that flows from my land towards Steele's Pond and the North Branch River. It was amidst the heat wave in mid-July 2019. The slightest breeze was welcome. As is usually the case with rural dirt roads, the trees lining both sides of the right-of-way had grown tall and large enough to form a kind of green tunnel which I found beautiful and soothing. Some of the older trees at the top of the hills seemed to have grown as mirrors of one another, their upper branches entwined. Perhaps they are ideal lovers, growing side by side and together, completing one another. I reached the cemetery and found the second gate open, so I entered and found my caller's family plot. It is large and inspires confidence that her relatives will find room there long after I am gone. When I was a child, my family lived at 57 Columbia Street in Mohawk, New York, the first house my parents owned. It was across from the Mohawk Cemetery. My mother occasionally noted that whatever one might say about a cemetery, its occupants were quiet neighbors. I often walked through it. I found the markers a kind of history book, nearly all bearing the names of ordinary people whose lives were quietly lived in a small town away from the shouting and tumult of the great world. The Mohawk Cemetery had only one distinguished occupant, Francis Elias Spinner, Who had been Herkimer County Sheriff, a militia general, a three-term U.S. representative, once a Democrat, twice a Republican, and Treasurer of the United States under Presidents Lincoln, Johnson, and Grant. He was also the first federal executive to hire women for clerical work on the same basis as men. He was renowned for his flamboyantly elaborate signature which appeared on millions of United States notes. He had developed it consciously to discourage counterfeiting. The signature appears on his grave marker in the Mohawk Cemetery. It also appears on the plinth of his monument across the Mohawk River in Herkimer, New York, which also bears this quotation. The fact that I was instrumental in introducing women to employment in the offices of the government gives me more real satisfaction than all the other deeds of my life. Coming back to my summer's day in the North Branch Cemetery, I paused for a few moments to look north, across the valley of the North Branch River toward Campbell Mountain in Hillsboro. Then I went down the rows of stones, noting several fellows who cantered off with the New Hampshire Dragoons during the Civil War, and a quantity who had served in World Wars I and II. One fellow had served in both. When I was a boy, such men and women called themselves retreads. There were also a few who had served in Vietnam. There were also a few revolutionaries, mostly identified by the militia company in which they had served. Although I know he's buried in North Branch, I couldn't find a marker for the long lived George Gates. Born August 8, 1753, and died December 13, 1845. He had fought at Bunker Hill on June 17, 1775, among those commanded. Don't fire until you see the whites of their eyes. And help prove, as one British officer wrote, that the Americans are full as good soldiers as ours. One fellow named Tuttle, an old New England family, had a few small stones placed atop his marker. It's a touching custom derived from the Jews. Flowers fade, stones endure. Perhaps a secular meaning might be found too as long as one is remembered by someone, one never truly dies. So I found a suitable pebble in the dirt road I was on and placed it among the others on the Tuttle marker. Two markers were particularly memorable. One read, Archie F. Perry, 1886, 1950, an honest man. There are worse things for which to be remembered. The other was a bench for a member of an old Antrim family whose relatives I know. It reads, Dennis C. Gale, Sr., to 1943-2008. We sit here, thankfully. He was the man he didn't have to be. There were several other benches about North Branch. They reminded me of the 19th century custom of picnicking in cemeteries, bringing the baskets to the family plots. Before Sir Alexander Fleming identified penicillin, death was a constant visitor for many families. Perhaps this custom allowed people to share good times with their deceased relatives. It waned by the twenties as early deaths became less common. The Penches also reminded me of Conrad Aiken, the Pulitzer Prize winning poet and man of letters who retired to Savannah where he had been born. He often sat by his parents' grave in Bonaventure Cemetery, at least in part for the view of the harbor and of the arriving and departing merchantmen. He once saw a ship with an intriguing name heading down to the sea. He did some research at the Port Authority where he confirmed the ship's name and looked up her destination. That information gave him a two-line poem. Aiken's tombstone is a bench. He wanted people to sit and enjoy a martini by his grave. On it is the poem, which is his epitaph. Cosmos Mariner, Destination
0: Unknown. And great job, as always, to Robbie Davis for his work here at Our American Stories. And a special thanks to Bill Brake for this piece. He's one of our regular contributors and just a great voice. And my goodness... We run for all kinds of offices or serve in all kinds of ways in our great country. And he's the cemetery trustee in little Antrim, New Hampshire. And Antrim is a town of 2,600 in Hillsbury County. And a lot of people, some of there. And that's why quite a number of people want to be buried there. They weren't just born there. They experienced some of the happiest times of their life, going away to just escape the New York heat or the Philadelphia heat, those Northeast cities. People run north in the summertime. They escape to the woods and to the the expanses of, of New England. And my goodness, I keep thinking of Archie F. Perry, 1886 to 1950, and all it says on his grave marker are three words, an honest man. It doesn't get better than that, and by the way, We'd love to hear your final thought stories, stories about death, uh, stories from people who are in their final days. There are not more interesting stories than that, or it could even just be a eulogy. My goodness, the eulogies we heard from the uh, Kobe Bryant memorial, from the memorial of Arnold Palmer, which is some, it's some of the best material we've ever put on the air. The storytelling is so beautiful. Again, send all of your stories and suggestions to our americanstories.com. Bill Breke, more of his storytelling from the little part of America called Antrim, New Hampshire, here on our American story. American stories and our next story is about finding meaning and purpose through acts of sacrificial service. Tracy Grant is the deputy managing editor at the Washington Post. She's also the author of the essay that appeared in the Washington Post. I was my husband's caregiver as he was dying of cancer. It was the best seven months of my life. Here's Tracy to share her story with us.
5: Almost 12 years ago, my world as I knew it ended. My husband of 19 years, the father of my two sons, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. Over the course of seven months, Bill went from beating me silly on the tennis court to needing my help to go to the bathroom and bathe. It was the best seven months. Of my life. Maybe I don't actually mean that, but it was certainly the time when I felt most alive. I had lived 42 years before I heard the phrases, we have a problem, multiple metastases on the brain, probably in the lung as well. I had become a respected professional, a responsible and I hope beloved parent. But I had yet to discover the reason I was put on this earth. During those seven months, I came to understand that whatever else I did in my life, nothing would matter more than this, even if I didn't really understand what this was. For me, there were no more bad days. I discovered that the petty day-in, day-out grievances of an irksome co-worker, a child with the sniffles, or a flat tire pale in comparison to the beauty of spontaneous laughter, the night sky, the smells of a bakery. Some days were more difficult than others, but there were moments of joy, laughter, tenderness in every day if I was just willing to look hard enough. I found I could train myself to see more beauty than bother, to set my internal barometer to be more compassionate than callous. But I also discovered that with each day, my heart and soul grew more open to seeing this beauty than at any other time in my life. When she was running for president during a town hall, Hillary Clinton was asked about her faith. And I read a treatment of the prodigal son parable by the Jesuit Henri Nouwen. And there was a line in it that became just a lifeline for me. Practice the discipline of gratitude. I had never thought about the lessons of Bill's illness in quite that way. But as soon as I heard it, I realized that's just what I had been doing during those months. I had been training myself to be grateful. Caregiving has gotten a bad name in this country. Being a caregiver to someone you love can be transcendent, a gift. And yet, for too many, it feels like punishment. There are lots of good reasons for this. Among the nation's more than 34 million unpaid caregivers, many are aging and ill spouses caring for equally aged and sicker mates. For some, caregiving lasts for years rather than months, and respite services that would allow for a little time off from the relentless nature of the challenge aren't always in place. I concede, I was very fortunate when my husband became ill. I was young and healthy. I had a great employer who provided even better health insurance. My bosses basically told me that my full-time job, for which I would continue to be paid, was to care for my husband and children. In the early days after Bill's diagnosis and brain surgery, Being a caregiver called me to be the best reporter I knew how to be. There was a heady sense that I could out-Macgyver this disease by my resources, intellect, and grit. I found clinical trials, talked to oncologists in Texas, Pennsylvania, and New York. I knew which chemo drugs would work in the brain and which would work in the lungs. I was relentless in making doctors and insurance companies answer my questions. It gave me a sense of purpose and it gave Bill great comfort and more than a few chuckles to overhear me reading the riot act to some poor insurance rep who had told me that a treatment wouldn't be covered. I don't know what it feels like to be an athlete in the zone where every pitch is a strike every shot a three-pointer, but those months were as close as I believe I will ever come. I was at the top of my game. In the latter days, being Bill's caregiver meant being fully present for as many moments of every day as possible. Even ones where my formerly strong, independent spouse needed the type of help that would have seemed unthinkable months earlier. Well-meaning friends suggested antidepressants or sleeping pills to help me take the edge off. I can certainly understand needing to do that, but I didn't want to be less than 100% present. I didn't want to miss or forget a moment. When it became hard for Bill to navigate the stairs, he slept on the family room sofa, and I slept on the floor next to him, at the ready if he needed help getting to the bathroom in the middle of the night. It was in some ways reminiscent of having premature twins and never sleeping more than a few hours at a stretch. With the boys, I prayed for the day I would no longer have to tend to them in the wee hours. With Bill, I prayed for another month, another week, another day of being able to have him to care for. When I couldn't sleep during those nights, I took to praying the rosary and then began praying it daily, even if I had no difficulty sleeping. For me, The repetition of the Hail Mary while caressing pearlescent beads helped slow my breathing, calm my mind. I came to feel naked if I didn't have beads in a pocket or a purse. Within easy reach, while scans were performed, IVs dripped, test results waited for. Even during the moments when I was most angry with God, I found I could talk to Mary on the theory that she knew a little bit about being challenged by God. Today, saying the rosary is part of my morning ritual, done while walking the dog and bearing witness to the moment when night relinquishes its purchase to a new day. During Bill's last weekend, we had dinner together. At that point, we no longer held on to the illusion of MacGyvering our way out of this predicament, although we still believed that he might come home one more time. We sat by side on his hospital bed, sharing a Subway sandwich and watching television. Later, a relative visited, and I noticed almost reflexively to myself that she had changed her appearance and not in a favorable way. It was the kind of thought I'd usually keep to myself. But just then, Bill voiced exactly what I had been thinking in that eerily intuitive, ruthlessly truthful way he had. And I found myself laughing out loud. I could live with this man, even as compromised as he is, Needing as much care as he does for the next 40 years, I thought to myself. He would be dead in four days. A dozen years later, I haven't started a foundation to cure cancer. I haven't left the news business to get a medical degree. I work. I pay the bills. I try to be there for our sons. I will never again be as good a person as I was when I cared for Bill. I will never again have that high a purpose. But every day I try to find and put into practice the person I was during those seven months. I try to be a little less judgmental, a little more forgiving, a little more generous a little more grateful for the small moments in life. I am a better person for having been Bill's caregiver. It was his last, best gift to me.
0: And what a gift for all of us. What a love story, folks. What a beautiful story. And again, it's Tracy Grant's story. In a way, her husband Bill's story, at least his final days. I was at the top of my game as a human being, she said. Tracy Grant's story, Bill's here on Our American Stories.
2: Carson,
3: Carson, Old Kit Carson. Mountain man and buckskin tan oh, helped help keep this country free. With buffalo gun and beaver trap, he didn't even have a map. The Rocky Mountains he called home, he only lived just further to roam. Carson, Carson, Old Kit Carson. Man and pan. Help keep this,
0: country free. this is Our American Stories, and you are listening to Fess Parker singing Old Kit Carson. And Kit Carson is one of the most complex characters in American history. We stumbled upon his story in Out Where the West Begins, Volume 2, Creating and Civilizing the American West by Phil Lanchett. And we've done some stories on Volume 1 of his great book, Carson's epic adventure in war and exploration embody the American spirit and its struggle for identity, the good, the bad, that come with the great conquest of the American West. All are summed up in this one man's epic life. And now we're about to bring you the story of Kit Carson, and it's driven by Dr. Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, and one of America's best storytellers about the American West. The mountain men were responsible for blazing nearly
6: every trail to the Pacific coast, for discovering the natural wonders of the Trans-Mississippi West, and for providing the muscle that fueled the fur trade. Yet few gained national recognition. An outstanding exception is Kit Carson, who becomes the most famous mountain man of them all. Kit Carson is portrayed heroically in books and articles and as a character in movies. He is also the subject of a television series. He is one of those figures who made us proud to be an American and whetted the youthful appetite for grand adventures. Carson is present at the creation, it seems. He has witnessed the dawn of the Trans-Mississippi American West in all its vividness and brutality. Place names throughout the West recall Kit Carson. There's Carson Pass and the Carson River in the Sierras. In Nevada, there's Carson Valley and Carson City, the capital of Nevada. There's the military post, Fort Carson, and the town, Kit Carson, in Colorado. One of Colorado's highest mountains is Kit Carson Peak in the Sangre de Cristo range. And in Taos, New Mexico, there's Kit Carson Park. Christopher Houston Carson is born in a log cabin on Christmas Eve, 189, in Madison County, Kentucky, the same year in the same state in which Abraham Lincoln is born. The 11th in a line of 15 siblings He is nicknamed Kit while still an infant, and the name sticks. When he is two, his Scotch-Irish family picks up and migrates westward to a farm near Boone's Lick, Missouri, home of the Daniel Boone clan. Here's Memphis native Hampton Sides, author of the national bestseller Blood and Thunder, the epic story of Kit Carson, and the conquest of the American West.
7: His family was good friends with the Boone family. They intermarried. These were backwoodsmen. They were rough and ready folks who um, were
6: in search of opportunity. For their own safety, the Carsons and other pioneers at Boone's Lick dwell in a state of perpetual vigilance. They live in sturdy cabins built near forts and well armed sentries patrol constantly all cabins are designed with rifle loopholes or firing ports in case of an Indian attack everyone knew a family whose child or mother had been carried off by Indians Kit's sister Mary recalls we would carry bits of red cloth with us to drop if we were captured by Indians so our people could trace us Despite all this, the young Kit Carson plays with Indian children whose parents come to Boone's Lick to trade goods. From an early age, Kit learns that Indians are not monolithic, that tribes could differ substantially and violently from one another, and that each group must be dealt with separately on its own terms. Kit is not quite nine when his father is killed while felling a tree and the large Carson family is left in desperate straits. Kit drops out of school to work full-time on the family farm and hunts in his spare time to help put meat on the table. At 14 years old, Kit is apprenticed at a saddlery. The teenager hates both the work and the confinement in the saddle shop, but it proves to be a blessing in disguise. Many of the shop's customers are trappers, traders, teamsters or scouts on the Santa Fe Trail. They're stirring tales of the way west and what lay over the far horizon sets the boy's imagination afire. Here's the executive director of the Western History Association
8: Paul Hutton. The West offers boundless opportunity, the freedom from all the restraints of family, all the restraints of a shopkeeper's life, and of course, the promise of adventure, of danger, of excitement. And so he runs away. He he does a Huck Finn and lights out for the territories.
6: At 16 in August, 1826, Kit turns a boy's adventure into a man's livelihood. When he crosses the Missouri border and heads west with a merchant caravan on the newly opened Santa Fe Trail. After 900 miles on the trail, Carson settles in Taos, New Mexico, where he develops fluency in Spanish, French, and a half dozen Indian tongues. And he also masters the universal sign language used by Western tribes. And yet, for all his facility with language. Kit Carson is illiterate. Taos is the capital of the southwestern fur trade, teeming with trappers, Americans, Frenchmen, Canadians, all of them scruffy and sunburned after months spent trapping in the Rockies. Carson
7: wanted to be a part of this fraternity of men. These greasy, grizzled, hairy, often drunk, international cast of characters who knew the rivers of the West and had been to all these amazing places. Uh, He wanted to be one of
0: these guys as quickly as they'd have him. And when we come back, more on the life of Kit Carson, his story, here on our American Stories.
1: ought to have been different, but you oftentimes will find That the
0: story doesn't always go the way you had in mind And we return to the life of Kit Carson, as told and driven by Dr. Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. Let's pick up where we left off.
6: in 1829 and not yet 20 years old Carson joins a fur trapping brigade of 40 mountain men who venture into Arizona most of which is still untouched by fur trappers
7: there probably was not a more dangerous profession in America at that time uh, than being a mountain man there was the danger of grizzly bears hypothermia starvation these men went into trackless wilderness for months at a time, all in pursuit of beaver pelts.
6: But the greatest reason why so few mountain men have ventured into Arizona territory are the Apache. The Apache delight in torturing and killing their enemies, especially the nearby Pima and Papago Indians. In this world the trapper's best chance at survival is for himself to adapt completely and entirely to the wilderness and to know intimately the Indians and their habits and their warfare. If the mountain men could do that, they survived. If not, they died.
8: The West is where races intersect. Cultures intersect. Intersect. Sometimes violently, more often not. Kit Carson moves easily in that world. He's not opposed to confronting people straight on and engaging in combat, taking a scalp, if need be, to make a point. But that doesn't mean he couldn't sit down and break bread the very next week. He understood what was expected of him, by native peoples that he came in contact with in terms of peaceful relationships and trade relationships, but also in terms of conflict. And he understood that retribution must follow crime and follow it immediately and harshly if one was to survive in this environment.
6: Every summer, the McFur companies organized what was known as the Mountain Man Rendezvous. And this was held high in the beaver country. It could be in Utah or Idaho or Wyoming. As always happens at these gatherings, various bands of Indians come to trade, gamble and drink with the mountain men. And it's not uncommon for trappers to take squaws for their wives during this month long festival. One of the most popular women Attending the rendezvous of 1835 is a young Arapaho beauty named Singing Grass. She catches Carson's eye, but another man is equally smitten. He's a very large, swaggering, blustering French-Canadian trapper known as the bully of the mountains. He's also an expert shot. Singing Grass chooses Carson and rejects the Frenchman. Over the next several days, Frenchman goes on a bender and begins to menace anyone who crosses his path. After being ignored by other mountain men, he strolls over to Carson's camp and announces how he particularly enjoys thrashing Americans. Carson springs to his feet and exclaims,
4: I'll rip your damn guts.
6: Frenchman says nothing but mounts his horse and rides out in front of camp daring Carson to fight him. Carson quickly jumps on a horse and gallops up to the Frenchman. They stop so close to each other that their horses' heads touch. Both men draw guns and fire precisely at the same moment. The Frenchman's bullet creases Carson's head taking scalp and hair with it. Carson's bullet goes through the Frenchman's right hand and blows away his thumb causing him to drop his gun. Carson draws a second pistol and prepares to deliver the coup de grace. Gingerly holding his maimed appendage the Frenchman begs for his life. Satisfied that he has humiliated him, Carson turns and rides away. Says Carson We
3: won't have any more problems with this bully Frenchman anymore, will we?
6: Singing grass and Carson marry after Carson offers her father a bride price of five blankets, three mules, and a gun. Carson is 25 years old. Like many
7: of the trappers, Carson settled down with an American Indian woman He found that this marriage was certainly a marriage of convenience in the sense that he had someone on the trail with him who helped do all the thousand and one tasks that had to be done. But it was the first love of his life. He was devoted to her.
6: After giving birth to their second daughter in 1840, Singing Grass dies of complications. And then shortly later, in an accident, the baby dies. She was a good wife to me, Carson tells a friend years later. I never came in from hunting that she didn't have warm water ready for my cold feet. Adding to Kit's pain, America is experiencing intense growing pains. The era of the mountain man is coming to an end. Decades of trapping has destroyed the beaver population and the once fashionable beaver hat is now being replaced with one made of silk.
7: Every summer throughout the 1840s, there were fewer and fewer beaver pelts. And this was a, a consequence of just how amazingly good these guys were at what they did. Here's Kit Carson from his autobiography. We trapped down the river, but found no beaver. The country was barren. It became necessary to
6: try our hand at something else. The beaver market collapses, and Carson finds himself out of work, withered, and shouldering the burdens of parenthood alone. He is 29. With his pockets empty and his future uncertain, Kit brings his daughter Adeline east and leaves her with family in Missouri to make sure she receives the education he never had and to protect her from the struggle that lies ahead. But as he boards a whistling steamboat in St. Louis for a trip up the Missouri, his prospects change when he strikes up a conversation with a passenger.
3: How far are you taking her?
1: I am leading an expedition through the Rocky Mountains. You ever been to the mountains, sir? It's a far piece. It'll Probably take you where you wanna go.
8: Well met, sir. John C. Fremont.
1: Kit Carson.
6: John C. Fremont is an American military lieutenant and an explorer who's about to embark on an expedition to survey and map the American West. And he has yet to hire a guide. Although Fremont has his doubts, he hires Carson on the spot. Carson and Fremont
7: were kind of an odd couple from the start. Fremont is quite well-educated, a very flamboyant guy. Carson, on the other hand, is unassuming, has this wry sense of humor.
6: The boy's gonna make it?
7: He's always giving someone else the credit.
6: Fremont and Carson blaze an overland route to the Pacific, a route that has already been discovered.
8: Carson, join me with the flag.
6: But it's- virtually unused by anyone except mountain men and Indians.
2: Look at all that out there, as far as I can see.
6: By May of 1846, the soon-to-be-called Oregon Trail is completed. Here's Sherry Monahan, president of the Western Writers of America.
5: They were the first people to figure out where they could ford rivers, what was the safest route where you didn't have to climb mountains, and they were the ones that led all of the pioneers out to populate and tame the wild west.
6: Dubbed the Pathfinder, Fremont's name reaches Lewis and Clark's status, and Carson's heroics become American legend.
0: And when we come back, more on the life of Kit Carson. You're listening to Dr. Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, and he's one of our best storytellers in this country. More on the life of Kit Carson after these messages.
7: One of the things that Carson did during one of the expeditions with Fremont was they encountered some uh, Hispanic
8: uh, wayfarers who had had their horses stolen from them. The New Mexicans have been attacked by Indians, and uh, the kind of mindset of the frontiersman was that you didn't allow this kind of behavior to go on, that you had to make a statement. Rather
7: spontaneously, Carson decides to pursue
8: these Indian horse thieves. The Indians were a large group, but nevertheless, Carson and his companion snuck up on the band, killed several of them, retrieved all the horses, brought back the horses and several Indian scalps to Fremont's camp.
7: This really impressed Fremont, Carson risking his life for a complete
6: stranger. In August 1844, Fremont has his expedition reports bound and published. On nearly every
8: page, he lavishes praise upon his fearless scout. Carson became a great romantic figure as an explorer, as a guide, as a frontiersman, as an Indian fighter. In these books that were supposed to be reports, they were actually grand adventure tales. These books were bestsellers in their day and were used as handbooks by hundreds of thousands of people going west. Here's American West historian
4: Sally Denton. Immigrants would be in their wagons holding that, and it would say, this is where you're gonna find fresh water, this is where there's going to be grass where you can graze your cattle. It was really uh, the first uh, map of its kind in America. But
6: following the unlikely pattern of his life, Carson's mission to map the Western territories is about to take on even greater significance. An unexpected dispatch arrives from the White House.
8: It's from President Polk and the Secretary of War.
6: President Polk is determined to push America's Western border all the way to the Pacific.
8: California, it says we are to continue our fine work in the West.
6: Carson and Fremont's exploratory expedition has just become a military mission.
8: I shall assert the right to that portion of our territory which lies beyond the Rocky Mountains.
7: President Polk had a vision of what America should look like. He wanted all of it, and he vowed that he would get it all, either by purchasing or, or by war, within one term.
6: This is the execution of Thomas Jefferson's vision for continent-wide expansion. And the term Manifest Destiny is coined 42 years after Jefferson acquired the Louisiana Territory from Napoleon in 1803. On April 25th, 1846, mexican cavalry attacks a group of u.s soldiers 18 days later Congress declares war on mexico it's the beginning of the mexican war navy warships close in on the california coast and army troops advance from the east fremont and carson arrive in california and there in northern california they support the Bear Flaggers, in the Bear Flaggers' Capture of Sonoma. As a reward for his valuable service, Carson rides to Washington, D.C. with a thick packet of sealed letters to deliver the good news to President Polk. But on his way, a greater duty redirects his path. Here's American frontier
1: historian, Derwood Ball. Kit Carson ran into a Stephen Watts Kearney leading first United States dragoons overland from Santa Fe to help finish the conquest of California. Whoa. We're going back to the west coast. Kearney
7: ordered me to join him as his guide. I'd done so. made me believe he had the right to order me.
6: Kit now leads General Stephen Kearney and 300 of his cavalry troopers to California. And one of those cavalry troopers happens to be the son of the famous Sacagawea. Carney also has a direct connection to the Lewis and Clark expedition. He is married to the daughter of William Clark. Now, before they get to California, they discover from some Mexicans they captured near the Arizona-California border that there's a revolt going on in California against... American rule. In December of 1846, Carney orders an attack at Mule Hill in San Pasqual, some 35 miles north of San Diego. But his weary men and exhausted mules that they're riding are outnumbered by well-trained Mexican lancers on fine horses. Americans are trapped on Mule Hill no cover and dwindling supplies. Here's historian, David Eisenbach. Don't take the shot unless
1: you got it.
8: It's a desperate situation. They've run out of food. The only thing they have to eat are the mules. And the only reinforcements are about 30 miles away in San Diego.
6: Despite all this, in the finest tradition of the U.S. Cavalry, Carney orders a charge. The battle that erupts, is known as the Battle of San Pasqual, And Carson is in the thick of it from beginning to end. By the end of the second day, Carney has lost 18 men and a dozen others, including Kearney himself, have been wounded. Carney's last hope is to send a messenger on foot through enemy lines to get help from Marines and sailors in San Diego. Carson.
8: We need supplies. I'll take care. Without
6: hesitation, Kit Carson follows orders once again. When darkness falls, Carson, an Indian scout, and a Lieutenant Edward Beale begin their journey. Just before dawn, the three split up to avoid detection.
4: need to get barefoot.
6: Before dawn. the three men begin their journey, but they begin it by creeping and crawling for several miles through enemy lines. Here's Kit Carson from his autobiography. Had to crawl about two miles.
7: And having had the misfortune to lose our shoes, we had to travel
4: barefooted. And a country covered with prickly pear and rocks.
6: And then, they split up and take three different routes, about 30 miles each, to San Diego. I need to speak with the commander of this outpost immediately. Within hours, Commodore Stockton sends a force of 200 marines and sailors to San Pasqual, And the Mexican army, seeing them come... Gallops away Get stays behind unable to walk for a week because of the condition of his feet A year later the U.S. concludes the Mexican war and through the Mexican session acquires another 500,000 square miles of territory adding some 20-25 percent more territory to the United States now the United States truly does stretch from sea to shining sea, from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Manifest destiny is now a reality.
0: And when we come back, the final segment in this epic story of Kit Carson. Continue with the final segment of the life of Kit Carson.
8: Kit Carson went to the West for the freedom and openness to escape from the constraints of society back home, back in the States. But then, of course, he brought it all with him. The dream of a continental nation has been met, and America stretches from sea to sea. The West is transformed and he sees it all. But he's also one of the major instruments that brings about that change.
6: Carson is once again dispatched to Washington, D.C. He arrives at St. Louis and then catches a train to deliver Fremont's field reports to President Polk in May of 1847, some three months after his departure.
5: Washington, D.C., at the time of Kit Carson's arrival, was becoming much more sophisticated. And just imagine this man who had been living most of his life out on the frontier has got to come back to this society he had to be very uncomfortable
6: off the trail kit is a shy unassuming man content to keep to himself but in washington his celebrity is overwhelming thanks to his real-life heroics and some 70 kit carson dime novels that are consumed by americans from coast to coast
8: everyone wants to meet Kit Carson, and that's because Kit Carson is the very living, breathing symbol of the American frontier and of our expansion westward. And, of course, everyone wants to hear from his lips what the opportunities are for America in the West.
6: The runaway apprentice has come a long ways. Carson's married three times and fathers ten children. His first two wives are Indian squaws, but his third wife is a beautiful, slender, 14-year-old Mexican girl named Josefa. She is 18 years his junior. Carson converts to Catholicism, and the two are married in 1843 in the Taos parish church. Carson thinks he might spend his remaining years as a peaceful family man. No such luck. A wave of migration continues to surge west. Clashes between settlers and Indians escalate into what becomes known as the Indian Wars. We come from the Santa Fe Trail. There's a woman and child, they're both missing. Would you help us? Duty calls Kit Carson once again. A Missouri trader named James White is headed west on the Santa Fe Trail with his wife Anne, and infant daughter. When their party is attacked by Apache Indians, James is killed, and the infant and the wife, Anne, are taken captive. Carson is alert, but if there's a story to be read on the ground, there's no better man to do it.
8: The formative experience for Kit Carson was when he worked as a a mountain man. His ability to track animals then became a very important asset in his ability to track human beings.
6: Finally, late on the 12th day, Carson sees plumes of smoke curling skyward in the distance. There's no time to lose. Yeah. Yeah. When Carson discovers the Apache camp, he finds Anne White dead, lying on her back with a steel-tipped arrowhead, daubed with rattlesnake blood, struck through her heart. She's still warm. Couldn't have been dead more than... Five minutes. She has been horribly abused, covered with bruises and lacerations, and she's also been gang raped day after day by her Apache captors. Carson finds something else. Here's a quote from his autobiography We found
7: a book in camp in which I was represented as a a great hero slaying Indians by the hundred. Mrs. White must have read it, knowing that I live nearby. Must have prayed for my appearance in order that she might be saved.
6: And White's infant is never found, and the incident haunts Carson until the day he dies.
1: The way that you wander Is the way that you choose Sunshine or thunder A man will always wonder where The fair wind blows
6: But the whites are just a drop in the ocean Among the tidal wave of travelers rolling westward a wave that can be traced back to the discovery of gold in California, news of which Kit Carson carried on one of his courier missions back east. In 1849 alone, some 100,000 Americans have set out for California, and the numbers will only increase. Carson was so effective in fighting the Indians and in making peace with them that by 1853, 1853, is appointed Indian agent to the Utes, a band New Mexican officials brand, the most difficult to manage in the territory. The Utes were a very
7: special tribe to Kit Carson. He absolutely loved them. He rode with them. Uh, he hunted with them. He knew them quite well.
6: When the Civil War erupts in 1861, Carson resigns as an Indian agent and joins the Union as a Colonel of the New Mexico Volunteers. He commands two battalions at the Battle of Valverde in 1862, which slows the Confederates from an advance up the Rio Grande Valley. Now the Apache and Navajo take advantage of the Civil War and renew their raids in New Mexico. Over the previous year alone, More than 30,000 sheep have been stolen and uh, some 300 people killed by the Indians. Carson leads expeditions against both tribes. Carson
7: lived in New Mexico his entire adult life and public enemy number one was the Navajo. Everybody in New Mexico, every Hispanic person, had some friend or family member who had been killed by the Navajo or had been stolen by the Navajo. And I think he thought a reservation on the Pecos was as good as
6: any that had been put forward as to how to end this cycle of violence. The campaign against the Navajo ends with the removal of 9,000 tribe members to a reservation in New Mexico. The Navajo call the removal the long walk and about 200 of them die on the journey. The 53-year-old Carson rides in the vanguard along with some of his favorite Ute warriors, or longtime bitter enemies, of the Navajo. Carson doesn't like clearing out the Navajo, but the alternative is to ignore their raids in the midst of the Civil War. Here's Pulitzer Prize-winning Indian novelist N. Scott Mamaday.
3: He Knew the Indians. He had known them from an early time as a mountain man. He probably knew Indians better than any other white man of his time. He knew what uh, they would stand and how they could be brought to terms with the army. And, uh, you know, he didn't hesitate, I think, to,
6: to act on the basis of his knowledge. Before the Civil War ends, Carson is promoted to Brigadier General. Following the war, Carson returns to his family, but duty keeps calling. In 1868, with chest pain so bad he could hardly breathe, Carson brings a delegation of Ute chiefs to Washington to negotiate a treaty, establishing a permanent reservation on the very ground the tribe claims has its own.
7: Here he is, this Indian fighter, known for his various campaigns. And yet he was also a peacemaker and a diplomat. I think the trick to understanding Carson is to go back to that idea that for him there was no such thing as as the American Indian. He sided with certain groups, and other groups were his enemy throughout his life.
6: Shortly after Carson returns home, his wife, Wasifa, gives birth to their eighth child. But complications set in, and within two weeks, his wife dies, and he's holding her in his arms. Then, just one month later, on the afternoon of May 23, 1868, Carson's aortic aneurysm ruptures. He calls out suddenly from his pallet of buffalo robes on the floor. Doc. Uh, Adios. Kit Carson passes from life into legend.
0: And great job to the whole team, and thank you, Dr. Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. And thank you also to Mr. Phil Anschutz and his terrific book, By the Way, Get It If You Can, Out Where the West Begins, Volume 2, So many great stories. We're going to get to a bunch of them. Thomas Jefferson, who starts it all. Of course, Tecumseh, Chief Red Cloud, Brigham Young, Frederick Douglass, George Washington Carver, and Mark Twain. Those stories coming up over the next weeks and months here on Our American Stories.